Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases podcast with your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. This year's completely sold-out Emergency Medicine Update Conference in Toronto was a blast. We had Alma Matu, Sarah Gray, Walter Himmel, Chris Hicks, Kylie Bosman, Aaron Ciel, and a long list of all-star educators give talks. They ran hands-on workshops, and they inspired everyone there to be the best emergency providers they could be. And I had the great fortune myself to do a live podcast in the main hall on Airway Pitfalls, with the man who brings upstairs, downstairs. That's right, Scott Weingart. And here it is. The vast majority of airway disasters happen when a routine intubation turns into a crash intubation. You know, for the vast majority of these cases, we have time. So we're gonna talk about these six pitfalls. First, without a plan, when things go badly, you're screwed. Next, Without all your vectors optimized in the best patient position, getting that tube in will be more difficult and your patient's physiology will not be optimized. Next, if you don't get that O2 sat as good as you can before intubation, again, you're asking for the patient to crash. All right, and then we're gonna talk about optimizing hemodynamics. We're gonna talk about the hemodynamically protective one. We're gonna consider awake intubation, not just for that crashing blood pressure patient, but also for the anatomically difficult patient. And then uh, we're going to talk about my favorite topic in the whole wide world, which is taking a scalpel to a patient's neck when it's going to save their life. All right, let's jump into our first case. A 20-year-old male presents to your ED via EMS found down. A rather inebriated friend reports that they found him unresponsive, face down on the sidewalk outside a frat party. On exam, He's got an obvious facial smash, and there's kind of blood everywhere. His blood pressure is 80 on 40. O2 sat is 86% on a non-rebreather, and he's febrile at 38.5. You quickly surmise that you're probably dealing with a triple threat, the trauma patient, the tox patient, and maybe even the medical patient as well. He's got a couple of big anti-cubital lines. Your team's gathered. And, of course, one of your first priorities is going to be getting that airway. So, Dr. Weingart, what's the first thing you recommend doing? Yeah, well, you have to question from a Darwinistic perspective whether this patient should be resuscitated. Because if you have a sepsis illness, do you really go drinking at a frat party? Do we want that person in the gene pool? But assuming you've gotten past that ethical divide, then the next thing is to actually you know, and this is all from the house of God, take your own pulse and make sure you're actually ready in the right mindset to take care of this patient. So it's that kind of situational awareness stuff we hear about and getting focus. You know, sometimes I find it really difficult to slow down and focus in these really hairy situations. What I've found very useful is what Mr. T would suggest, and that's to beat the stress fool. Like, what does this beat the stress fool thing? Yeah, so this is a, a brilliant idea that I've only tangentially been involved with by a guy named Mike Loria, one of the most incredible up-and-coming EM educators on the topic of stress management. And so Beat the Stress Fool is a just-in-time stress management technique. It allows you to actually control your own physiology when you have a difficult situation coming up. And so the four parts, and you don't have to use all of them, you use whichever ones resonate with you. But the first one is to breathe, and that's to actually slow down and take control of your breathing rate 
and volume because that will have direct physiologic consequence on your pulse rate, on your stress response. So we advocate tactical breathing. You know, breathe in for four seconds, hold it. Breathe out for four seconds, hold it. But you don't have to count. You just need to slow down and be cognizant of the fact that you're breathing rapidly and, and actually take control. Talk is self-talk. And uh, Sarah Gray gave an amazing lecture on the consequences of negative self-talk. So actually take control and give yourself positive self-talk. Tell yourself, yeah, I'm going to intubate this patient and they're by every likelihood going to code during it, but I know what to do if that happens and I know what to do to prevent it, so this is going to go fine. Then C, along those same lines, is visualizing a successful procedure. Thinking about every step, but not just seeing the steps in terms of here's what I need to do, but see yourself actually doing them perfectly, like the best chest tube you've ever placed, the optimal thoracotomy. Everything just goes perfectly. If you picture that in your head, the literature from the athletic world would tell us it actually augments your success. And then the last one is actually a trigger word. And you have to develop this beforehand, so you have a word that works for you. Mine is smooth. But if I say smooth, I've worked on it beforehand in my mind, that when I say that, a whole bunch of things happen in terms of my mental makeup. And I remember that everything's going to go perfectly. I'm going to slow down. I'm going to take everything as slowly as possible. And then things are going to go smoothly. Other people are going to have different trigger words. But having one word that you've isolated in your head as something that gives you calm and makes you perform well will have optimal benefits to you. So just to review there, beat the stress fool. The B stands for breathe. The T stands for talk or self-talk. The S stands for C, that is visualize. And the F stands for focus. All right. So now you've kind of decreased your stress level. The next thing in this first pitfall is the failure to plan for failure, essentially. So I was amazed to learn that failed intubation occurs in about 20% of critically ill patients. And so it really, it should be anticipated. So with this anticipation of a failed airway in mind, rather than thinking of the ABCs as airway breathing circulation, I'd like you to think of it as having a plan A, having a plan B if plan A fails, and having a plan C if plan B fails. So Dr. Weingart, what are sort of the key elements in planning for a failed airway? Yeah, and I just want to preface and say, you know, you hear Anton's number 20%, and you think, wow, we're a bunch of idiots. No, it's not it at all. And the anesthetists like to look at this number 20%, and if they have a bad attitude, they'll say, you guys shouldn't be intubating, because look how much you fail and how much we fail. It's an entirely different environment. The reason critically ill patients have such a high failure rate is not because of your skills, it's because of their physiology. And you don't have three minutes to get the optimal view. You have like less than three seconds. And so the chance of failure is because the patient is critically ill, not because it's eMERGE folks doing the intubation. So you should plan for it, but understand it's not a failure of you. It's a failure of the situation. If there were elective OR cases, it might be different. So ABC. A is primary laryngoscopy. And that should be a limited number of attempts. So for me, since I'm in a teaching institution, Three maximal. It doesn't mean we're going to go for three, but three is the most we will ever do for laryngoscopy attempts. So three times the blade will enter and leave the mouth. After that, you don't get A anymore. A is gone. And then you got to go to B. And B is rescue with a supraglottic airway. And that's regardless of what the patient's sats are. You don't get to keep going because each insertion of that laryngoscope into the tissues of the airway causes edema, causes trauma, and makes the likelihood of successful intubation less. So three attempts max, then B gets you a supraglottic airway. If the supraglottic airway is not giving you a good saturation and waveform and tidal CO2, you immediately declare that this is a can-intubate, can-oxygenate situation, and you move to front-of-neck access or surgical cricothyrotomy. 
I wanted to ask you a little bit about the bougie. In your first attempt, do you use a bougie every time? Or do you just go video, or do you go direct, or combination video bougie on the very first time? You had, you had mentioned this in a podcast before. Yeah, so I know there are registrars in the room. And so you're still in the learning phase, right? You should learn all different techniques. And you might choose for your first attempt to be uh, using a video learning scope as a direct and not even looking at the screen and no bougie. But for me, when I'm intubating, if I'm the primary attempt at intubation, it's because either no one else is available or something has gone horribly wrong or the patient is way too sick that we're not even going to give the registrar a chance. And if that's the case, then I want to optimize my first pass success. So I'm going to do everything as perfectly as possible on the first attempt, which means I'm going to use video right up front. And then for me, I'm going to use a bougie during my first attempt because I know for me, and I think the literature would bear this out, it's not great literature, but it's out there, that the first pass attempt with bougie is going to be more successful. And the reasons are intuitive because sometimes you could see the cords, maybe you just see a tiny glimpse of them, but you can't get the endotracheal tube to go where you want or through those cords. But if the bougie is there, small, tiny, coup de tip, and you can get that through the cords, then I know that I'm eventually going to be able to get the ET tube railroaded over it. So for me, first attempt is the best attempt. Everything I could do to optimize is optimized. And for me, that means video and bougie. All right. So you've got a lot of gear by the bedside here, Scott. What exactly do you need? I mean, there's all kinds of cry kits out there. What's kind of your bare minimum in terms of at the bedside what you need? Yeah. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of stuff. So let's limit it to the stuff you need for your failed airway plan. And it's very easy. The stuff that's at the bedside should be everything you need to enact A, B, and C. Because if you have to go looking for it in the course of a failed airway, then that's already a disaster. You cannot have a patient with a saturation of 40% and then say, oh, please go find me the superglottic airway. So for me, in order to have everything I need for A, B, and C, I have whatever I need for the initial airway attempts. For me, that's a video laryngoscope, a standard laryngoscope, and the ET tube, obviously. And then if I fail that, I'm going to either use the bougie on my first pass or as my second. So the bougie has to be there. I'm going to have a properly sized superglottic airway, take money from no companies. For me, it's a size 4 eye gel. Fits every adult, no balloon, idiot proof, or I should say, because there's better idiots every day, idiots resistant. <laughs> and then what I need to do a crike, which is the bougie I already mentioned, and a scalpel. And then preferably, though I don't need it, a smaller ET tube or a trach. But having a Bougie, a scalpel, and a superglottic airway are the bare minimum, from my perspective, to have for any airway you're doing, whether it's predicted easy or hard. Yeah, I mean, I find those crike kits, you open them up, and you're trying to figure out which pieces are what. If you want to just simplify things, really, these are just the three things that you need. Yeah, and we'll talk about that towards the end. Yeah. All right, so next in planning for failure is making sure your presses are ready. I mean, we're still on our first pitfall here is failure to plan for failure. What do you think about the idea of having a norepi drip hanging before you even intubate and then having push dose epi ready in case the blood pressure tanks? Yeah, so the norepi drip at the bedside or preferentially even running on a patient who has any potential for hemodynamic decompensation is when you've been smart enough to pre-identify that this patient's at risk of dropping their BP. And then having that drip there is really nice. And we do it for all our septic patients, even if pre-intubation their blood pressure is 110 over 70 and we're intubating them for other reasons, we just have the norepi drip in the room sitting there. Now, sometimes you can't predict who's going to decompensate hemodynamically. There's no indication whatsoever. And for those patients, we have push-dose epi sitting there on the table already drawn up. So we have, for any critically ill patient we're intubating, push-dose inopressor 
epinephrine sitting at the bedside with a label pre-printed saying the concentration, 10 micrograms per ml, on the table next to our bougie and our scalpel and our ET tubes. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember, Scott, that you don't necessarily need a central line for these patients. Oh, gosh, no. If you, if you decide to hang a norepi drip before just in case, a good anti-cubital line is more than adequate. We did this for years with no evidence. We have evidence now. There's a randomized controlled trial saying this is safe. There's additional observational trials. Never take a crashing hypotensive patient and wait to start the central line. If you have a patient whose blood pressure is borderline, just start a peripheral norepi drip. Intubation or not, just start the norepi drip and then you could temporize, diagnose, ultrasound, all the other bullshit. Because patients, when they get around a map of 40, die. And you don't want that to happen. So you just start the peripheral norepi and you temporize and you figure it out. Communicating your plan, of course, is vital. So can you give us an example, if you're in a room with a team, how you'd actually verbalize all the stuff we've been talking about in preparation? Yeah, so whoever is the primary intubator with the way we do our intubation checklist has to say the full plan. Now, this, you say, oh, that's crazy. It's going to take like two minutes. We don't have that time. No, this takes like 10 seconds. And so whoever the primary intubator is, and we train our registrars to do this, is they say, I'm going to take the first attempt with direct laryngoscopy. And then if I fail, I'm going to use video and bougie. If those two fail, you're going to take over, pointing at whoever's the most experienced person in the room. If we had three attempts and there's no success, then we're going to place a superglottic airway. And if we can't get waveform and tidal CO2 and a good pulse ox, we're going to cut the neck. And that's it. Now, everyone in the room is on the same page. But even more importantly, you've empowered the nurses, the respiratory therapists, the medical students in the room when you try to take the fourth and fifth laryngoscopy attempt to say, hey, doc, you told us it's only going to be three, and then we're going to place a superglottic airway and regroup. What are you doing? Because now they've heard the plan out of your own mouth, and they don't let you get into a situation where it's just repetitive, life-threatening attempts at the one thing that we want to happen, which is laryngoscopy, instead of what should happen, which is oxygenation. You know, in preparing for failure, we've talked about so far the bougie, the LMA, the superglottic, and having a cry kit by the bedside, getting your pressors ready, verbalizing a failed airway plan, and assigning roles. The last preparation step that you may want to consider in at least some of your patients is marking the cricothyroid membrane. So, Scott... We're talking about marking the cricothyroid membrane, even in the preparation phase, before you've even thought about intubating the patient. Yeah, and you know, and we don't push this on every patient, but a lot of patients leave our eMERGE with a black mark on their neck. And the reason for this, and we just use a, a Sharpie because they don't wipe off when you prep the patient, is twofold. One, if the patient's predicted to be difficult by whatever gestalt or actual objective measures you use, then you want to have felt the cricothyroid cartilage and membrane as much as possible. And this forces you to do it. But that's not even the really important part. The important part is if you're willing to break the psychological barrier and actually draw on your patient when they're still conscious, it's taken a lot of the gap between thinking this is the right thing to do and actually doing it away. Because you've already violated the patient's personal space. But you've also told everyone in the room that this is something that was predicted. This wasn't a failure. This wasn't me screwing up. This was something I really thought would happen, and I prepped for it, and I knew this was going to be the case, and look how, look how good I am. It did lead to that. You know, it actually went where I thought it was going to go. I thought it was going to be difficult, and it turned out it was. Now everyone in the room looks at you like, 
good doc. This person knew what was up. They prepped for this. That's, that's someone I want taking care of me. Versus, what an idiot. They can't even intubate this patient. So it just changes the mindset of everyone around you and your own head to say, all right, if this needs to happen, we'll get it done, as opposed to, what an idiot. Right, so, so far we've covered failure to plan for failure. The second pitfall is failure to position the patient properly. Now, we're going to talk a lot about position of patient because this is probably the most important thing that's going to dictate whether you get that tube in or not. But before we get into the position of the patient during intubation, it's vitally important to keep the patient upright for as long as possible before you intubate. Now, why is this? Why is it important to keep that patient kind of bolt upright 90 degrees for as long as possible before you lay them more flat to intubate them? Yeah, and, uh, you know, bolt upright maybe, you know, you don't have to go that far, though it's certainly beneficial in patients with pulmonary edema. But physiologically, we were never meant to be supine. That is like the worst position in the world for a patient. Atelectasis happens almost instantaneously in that position, and you're just eliminating your functional residual capacity and your buffer of oxygenation. So there's no reason to ever lie a patient flat. And even when you're intubating them, I don't lie them flat. 20, 30 degrees head up probably gives you better glottic exposure and probably, the studies are a little bit varied, I could argue about them, but probably lead to a longer time to desaturation. So start them pre-oxygenating upright and then line them down but never line them flat. So 90 degrees to start and then you 20, take 30. them to 20 yeah. to 30. So that's why we keep patients upright for as long as possible before we intubate. What about when we're actually going to intubate? Can you just go through for us the position of the body, the position of the neck, the position of the face, everything to optimize the chances of getting that best view. Yeah, so, and this is all assuming this is not an inline stabilization patient. There's three parts to optimal positioning in a non-C-spine stabilized patient. You need to have the ear holes, your external auditory meati, at the same horizontal level as your sternal notch. That's part one. Ear to sternal notch. Ear to sternal notch. Part two is face plane parallel to the ceiling. His face, if you drew a line and eliminated his nose, is directly parallel to the ceiling. This prevents a situation where their ear holes are at the level of the sternal notch, but they're all bent and you can't even get the laryngoscope into their mouth. So you need those two in concert. But the one that gets forgotten, and maybe the most important of all of them, is in addition to those two, you need base of neck flexion. Because you can make those two happen, ears to sternal notch and face plane parallel, with the head pulled backwards. And that will not give you optimal glottic exposure. And this is the last one is not talked about very frequently, but it's key. In fact, there was a randomized control trial of ears to sternal notch face plane parallel where the base of the neck had no flexion at all, and that study showed no benefit to this position. So you need that. So once you get the face plane parallel and the ears to sternal notch, you push the head forward, which causes the neck to flex. And that's the key to the three-part positioning procedure. Yeah, this, the base of the neck flexion was, was new to me, so that's something that's going to definitely change my practice. I mean, one of, the, one of the common errors that I see is neglecting to get that face parallel like Scott was just describing, and what happens is, is this. You get the chin right into the chest, and as Scott was describing. And there was this study that put forth, like, you should just scoot the patient way up on the stretcher and lay their head over the top of the gurney, and that will get their ear holes to the sternal notch, and it will get their face plane parallel to the ceiling, 
and it will lead to actual base of neck extension, and that is a really garbage way to intubate a patient. Yeah, don't, don't do that too often, Scott. You're going to get a vertebral uh, artery <laughs> dissection there. All right. So let's say you've given the paralytic. Now, what if you're having trouble with face mask ventilation? What if you give the paralytic, you're bagging the patient, and it's just pressure, pressure, pressure. You just can't get past that pressure. What can you do in terms of position to overcome that? Yeah, you know, so when you're having difficulty bagging, obviously there's a few steps of optimization. If you haven't already put in an oral airway, if you haven't already get your one hand off of the bag and one hand off the mask and put two of them on the mask and really crank the patient's face back. If you're still having trouble, this was a revelation to me. This is from my friend Cliff Reed, uh, who pointed out the study that actually demonstrated this. But turning the head to the left or right, about 45 degrees, may optimize the position. And this is kind of counterintuitive. I don't even now quite know why this does work, but it does. But then how do you know this is working? If you don't have end tidal CO2, monitoring not just your confirmation of intubation, but your confirmation of each breath given by a BVM, you're failing your patient. Sarah Gray earlier said, how many folks have entitled CO2 waveform? And some people raised their hand and said they didn't have it. I don't think that's acceptable. I think this is now standard of care. And I don't say that about very much stuff. Every breath, not just every intubation, every breath given in an emergent ICU should be with waveform capnography. But if you're failing those three things, you've tried this maneuver, it doesn't work, you just place a superglottic. Don't mess around more than 20 seconds trying to optimize BVM. Just get rid of the M and put in a superglottic airway. Scott, after you've optimized your patient position, like we've described, one trick to help visualize the cords, I mean, you should be able to get a good visualizations once you've done all the things we just talked about. But sometimes, you know, you, you take a look and you just want a little bit better visualization of the cords. This is a video from uh, George Kovacs in the AIM course, just to show you how effective the head lift maneuver can be right at the end after you've done all the positioning stuff we've talked about. Once you've done all those positioning maneuvers, this is kind of the last step to bring those cords into view. We'll have this video in the show notes for you to watch. I already pre-raise the head so that the ears are at the same level as the sternal notch. But then, even if I'm at that level and I'm not seeing anything, I would lift even further than that until I make sure that at maximal lifting of the head, even past the ears to sternal notch, I still haven't improved my view. And if I have, then I'll ask my partner to just hold the head at that exact position. So even at perfect positioning, you should still try lifting the head further. All right, so we've talked about positioning. We've talked about failure to plan. The third pitfall is failure to optimize oxygenation. Now, in order to understand oxygenation, we first need to understand the concept of denitrogenation. Scott, what the heck is denitrogenation, and why do we need to understand it? Yeah, so you guys all know, your lungs right now are filled with 79% nitrogen and 21 or so percent oxygen. Uh, and wouldn't it be swell during the intubation if that was 100% oxygen, because that would be that much bigger reservoir to utilize during the patient's apneic period during intubation. So if you get as much nitrogen out of the lungs, and we talk about it in the bloodstream and cells as well, but that really is like a piddling contributor. It's really the lungs, the alveoli that matter. So you want to wash out as much nitrogen as possible from the lungs. I break these two down. I say denitrogenation is that. And then pre-oxygenation, in my mind, I call something different, which is optimizing the patient's PaO2, or if we don't have it, we never do, the surrogate of pulse ox. I want to see 100% pulse ox before I intubate. So denitrogenation, washing out all the nitrogen, and oxygenation are the two steps to pre-ox. All right, so let's talk a little bit about pre-ox then. To help optimize it, 
we suggested the triple 15 rule in a podcast we did way back on DSI. You coined that. It was brilliant. I started using it after you said that. Thanks, Scott. So the triple 15 rule, as you can see here, is more than 15 liters by nasal prongs, more than 15, at least 15 liters by non-rebreather, and 15 centimeters of water of CPAP. How does this thing work? Like, why are we doing it? How does it work? Yeah. So a few things on it. First of all, non-rebreather at 15 Garbage. Don't do that. If you're already, if you're doing that now, stop immediately. Um, it does not provide anywhere near the amount of FiO2 you need to denitrogenate. Now, if you have a flow meter that goes beyond 15, for your non-rebreather, crank it up as high as it possibly goes. For most places in North America, that'll go greater than 50 liters per minute. That actually becomes workable alone. But there's no reason not to have a buffer of safety for preox. So also put a nasal cannula on. Now, we know 15 is safe. Uh, there's been a study recently, randomized controlled trial, demonstrating way beyond that. 30, 40, 50 is safe. Not necessarily comfortable, but safe. So we put about 20 liters on nasal cannula. We put at least 50 liters on the non-rebreather. That is giving pure FiO2. If that has not gotten your SAT up to 100%, and I want that 100, then you add CPAP. And I used to say, if it's not greater than 95, add CPAP. Forget that. If it's not 100, Add CPAP. Now, that could be with a ventilator, an oxalator, a non-invasive machine. Forget it. All too tough. So what you want is you just want a PEEP valve on your BVM. A PEEP valve and a BVM and that nasal cannula. You need the nasal cannula there or else it doesn't power the PEEP valve. will give you whatever CPAP you dial in on that PEEP valve. So if they're not 100% on non-rebreather and nasal cannula, I hold a two-hand mass seal with the BVM. I don't squeeze. PEEP valve on. I start at 5, 10, maximum 15. And if that doesn't get up to 100%, then I just have to intubate with whatever I got because I can't get it any better. But at least I've given them the maximal try. Our fourth pitfall is going to be optimizing hemodynamics. In the patient where you feel you really want to do an RSI, how do you optimize hemodynamics for an RSI? Um, you need to change the doses and choices of medications radically. And the easier one to get out of the way is paralytics. Patients with poor cardiac output, patients in a shock state, it's going to take a lot longer for those paralytics to get to those motor end plates. Uh, sometimes like four or five minutes, you're like, what did you give? Are you sure that succinylcholine wasn't expired? And like, because the, the patient's still flailing about three minutes after. If you don't want that situation, up your doses significantly. And I just make it easy for my registrars. Two milligrams of sucks per kilogram or two milligrams rock per kilogram. You cannot overdose these paralytics. They'll stay paralyzed longer. It's actually usually a boon to be able to get them to CT scan without them moving around. Just make sure you analgese and sedate those patients. So two milligrams per kilogram of each. Induction agents are a little bit more difficult to talk about, but I'll make it easy. If it's available, use ketamine, reduce the dose, but understand that you do not want a patient, if you could avoid it, awake. So I do things a little bit differently. Can I talk about that, Anton? Yeah, sure. All right. So I, I perpetrated an idea called delayed sequence intubation. And it was for patients who were just too agitated to allow preox. But I've since gone further and say there's a concept of hemodynamic DSI. And it allows you to use a much lower dose of ketamine because what you're going to do is give a reasonable dose, 25, 50 milligrams, but don't push your paralytic. Just wait a little while and make sure that dose actually fully dissociates the patient. You can shake them around, you can move their head around, they're reacting not at all. And at that point, you've proven that even though it's a low dose, it's fully knocked the patient out, they're dissociated, not aware, and then push your paralytic. 
If you're not willing to do that hemodynamic DSI, then you have to give an uh, empirical dose of ketamine. And that number probably is between half and one milligram per kilogram. But understand that in a patient who's just a little bit sick, that might not be enough. So I'm kind of scared. I don't do that. I do this hemodynamic DSI. So I give the ketamine. I wait. Like I say, it's a first-pass agent. You'll see almost instantaneous results. And I make sure whatever dose I gave fully knocks the patient out, and then I paralyze them and intubate. All right. So simply put, we're talking about a low induction dose with a high paralytic dose. Yep. So this is just an important concept kind of in general. You had mentioned succinylcholine, rocuronium. If there's just an easy dose to remember in the heat of the moment, this is what you recommend, eh? Rock, yep. 150, ketamine 50. You can call it rock ketamine, call it whatever you want. And again, you know, don't forget to, you know, you might be hanging your norepinephrine, you've got your push dose pressors. What blood pressure do you really optimally want to go for? Uh, you know, we, we've got this patient with a, a blood pressure of 80 on 40, that's obviously not acceptable. We were, we've talked about uh, resuscitation before intubation. What, what actual blood pressure, what's an easy number to remember? MAP of 80 is, is where, I, at the very least, I'd like to be. Now, sometimes you can't get them in there, but that's what I'd take. MAP of 80, systolic 120, 140. And then, if they prove to you they're great, then you just dial everything down as soon as you get them intubated. But that'll give you a little bit of a buffer in case they do drop. Okay. And for those people who don't like to use MAP so much and just systolic blood pressure? Like I said, 120 to 140. 140. Okay, yeah. 140. Map of 80. Okay. Now, we're on to our fifth pitfall here. You know, a couple of years back, I was in the middle of a shift, and I heard Dr. Hellman to recess. And I knew there were some other physicians working in the department at North York. And as I come into the resuscitation room before I see the patient, I see my colleague's face, and he's like white as a ghost, and he's like sweating. And I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, what's going on here? And then I round the corner into the room, And there's a patient that was about this size. And here in the live podcast, I show a patient with a very, very large BMI. In pretty severe respiratory distress. This is the kind of patient that, you know, you really want to consider an awake intubation. I want to talk a little bit about who really should we be considering awake intubation in? Because we're not all that comfortable with it. We really need to know which patients that it's, it's most suitable for. Yeah, so we talked about earlier the hemodynamic patient, so I don't need to dwell on that. Surprisingly, oxygenation is sometimes a reason. If your patient could barely saturate to 80%, no matter how much you do for them, um, it's probably not going to get better during the apneic period. I would consider those awake. And then the last one is the actual patient anatomy. And this patient, uh, what the studies have shown, and Levadan did some very good work on this, is if you position them perfectly, they're not any tougher than your non Uh, morbidly obese or super obese is the category we have in the United States. But you never know. So I'm going to position this patient perfectly, but I'm never going to RSI this patient. I'm going to do them awake. We're going to topicalize. We're going to give maybe a little bit of ketamine or maybe a tiny bit of Versed. And then we're going to intubate. But if we fail, we've taken nothing away from the patient. They're exactly where they were before we actually started the awake intubation, as long as you're not you know, excessively traumatic with your scope. So there's no reason that this patient can't be intubated safely. And if you fail, then you have to work on other plans. 
Now, the one thing I will say is that getting help on this patient, if you're not very comfortable with your awake intubation, is a very nice thing to do. And we're not, you know, saying, oh, I failed because I called for help. You know, having two smart heads in the room is always better than one. I'm lucky enough to be in a shop where we have multiple eMERGE docs on at the same time. I would always call my colleague in for a patient like this, even if I'm doing them awake, because I want the second person there. And I could say, hey, start looking at the neck, because we're not seeing great stuff, and their stats are starting to drop. And if you're in a single doc shop, if you could call someone in, temporizing them to get to that point may be worthwhile. that one sink in a bit. Mm. So just a quick review there. For the awake intubation, they should be considered in the hemodynamically unstable patient. In the patient where despite the triple 15 pre-ox, you still can't get the oxygenation saturation up above 90, 95%. And then finally, the anatomically challenging patient, like a bad facial smash or a very high BMI patient. All right. So this brings us to our final pitfall. And that's not properly preparing for a crike. We talked a little bit about marking the crike. Uh, we talked about the simplified kit, having it at the bedside. We talked about communicating your plan to your team. Scott, can you just run through for us the procedure that would minimize the cognitive load and maximize the chances of success for, yeah. for a crike? And uh, you know, I, I, I've made these arguments in the past because of my experience doing this and because of the experience of people that wrote to me. In fact, I have a whole folder in my email of like, I think it's up to like 45 people who have said, never done a crike before, I tried this technique and it worked and it went well and I don't think if I was still using the kits or the cylinder technique, this would have been a successful situation. So uh, that's what we were going on before. Now, like Laura Duggan, another fellow Canadian for you folks, uh, she's an anesthetist in Vancouver. She's actually studied this and this technique has been the most successful in the actual real life situation as opposed to pig labs or simulation labs. And so it's the scalpel finger bougie. And it's minimal equipment. It's something you could practice repeatedly in your home. In fact, that same person, Laura Duggan, uh, created a free 3D printable model that you could print out for minimal cost. She doesn't charge for it. She made it foam. And you could practice this a few times each month and you'll be ready to go. But you take your scalpel. If you could palpate anatomy, great. You're going to make about an inch and a half or three centimeter cut from your thyroid cartilage to your cricoid cartilage. If you can't feel anatomy, you're going to cut all the way from the top of the neck down to the sternal notch. The scar is not really the issue on these patients, saving their lives are. So you're going to make a big cut, and you're going to spread with your hands, and at that point, I promise you, you'll be able to feel anatomy. Once you feel the anatomy, you'll grab the thyroid between your thumb and middle finger, You'll touch one more time with your index finger that cricothyroid membrane, and now you're going to make a horizontal cut through the membrane towards yourself, but don't take your scalpel out. Turn 180 degrees and push back the opposite direction. You've cut the full horizontal breadth of the cricothyroid now. And now here's the key. At that point, you take your scalpel the hell out of the field, and you plunge your finger in, not just so that it's between the cartilage, but actually pushing it all the way so that you feel the back wall of the cricoid. Now you have cartilage surrounding your whole finger and your fingertip is touching the back wall of the cricoid. There is nowhere else in the human body that will feel like that. You've also dilated the hole way more than you need to get the tube in. So everything's going to go slick as could be. You take the bougie and you ride it down 
the tip of your finger, and you feel it going into the same space that your fingertip is already occupying, and you feel it go past. The bougie can't be anywhere else except where it needs to be at this point. Once the bougie's pushed past your fingertip, you get your finger out of there. This procedure is fait accompli. There's no way you could fail at this point. The bougie is going to guide your tube where it needs to go. So you take your trach or your 6.5 ET tube, you railroad it over the bougie. If you're having some trouble getting it through the hole, which you shouldn't because your fingertip dilated it, you just twist it a little bit. Just until that balloon disappears, bougie out, bag with entitled CO2, confirm, change your pants, and you've saved a life. <laughs> So again, the, the way I like to simplify all of this, uh, to think of it so that you're not in the, in the moment freaking out, is if you can just remember scalpel, finger, scalpel, finger. So large vertical incision with the scalpel, palpate the cricothyroid membrane, horizontal incision with the, with the scalpel, turn, then the finger again, put your hole in it, and then you're basically home free. Bougie, tube. Notice how in this podcast so far, we're almost wrapping up here, we haven't actually talked at all about putting the tube in. And ironically enough, that's what we always think about when we think about, okay, we need to intubate this patient. We think about, oh, we need to get that tube in. We need to get that tube in. We need to get that tube in. So just to help you reflect there a little bit, everything we've talked about so far has nothing to do with actually just putting the tube in. So when we avoid these six pitfalls, really sinking the tube becomes easy. 100%. You know, video laryngoscopy, for whatever else you'll say about it, uh, has taken away a lot of the necessity for hundreds of intubations to become to a very optimal point. And as long as you've trained reasonably, you have those skills. The skills that get lost are exactly what you're alluding to, Anton. It's caring about the patient's physiology. It's about handling the entire team. It's about actually anticipating the disasters that are coming. It's not about sticking the tube in. So you've, you've stated that perfectly. Great. So let's try and etch this all into your brains with a solid review here. Number one. Plan for failure. Remember to slow down first, breathe deep, be Mr. T and beat that stress fool. Don't rush the intubation. Set up and vocalize a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C. That's bougie, superglottic, and cry kit. Mark the cricothyroid membrane for anticipated challenging airways. Hang the norepi in advance. Have your push dose presser ready, epi drawn up and verbalize and assign your roles. Number two. Patient position is vital. Keep the patient upright for as long as possible before you lay them to about 20 or 30 degrees. If you're having trouble with face mask ventilation, that's a great little pearl of just turning your patient's head about 45 degrees. That can sometimes relieve it. And then remember, there's three aspects of positioning during intubation. Ear to sternal notch, face parallel to the ceiling, and the one that I never knew about before was getting that base of neck flexion. Finally, if you just need that little bit of extra view, you can do that little head lift maneuver like we saw in the video. Number three. Oxygenation. Denitrogenation is vital, and don't forget the triple 15 rule, at least 15 liters by nasal prongs, at least 15 liters by non-rebreather, and 15 centimeters of water by CPAP. Use your end-tidal CO2 to guide you, as, uh, as Dr. Gray had mentioned uh, earlier today. And fourthly, optimize your hemodynamics with rocketamine. 
high-dose rock, low-dose ketamine in all your precarious patients, plus minus the norepi drip that you already have hung there, and your epinephrine push dose. Fifthly, but what happened to the child slave labor that's supposed to be saying these numbers? Oh, I know. I, th- I only got her to say three, my, my <laughs> poor daughter. She, she got bored. All right. Fifth, consider awake intubation in your high BMI patients. And finally, you know, marking the cricothyroid membrane, it's not so much the marking, it's that the whole team gets mentally prepared and make sure you're logistically prepared by remembering that, that scalpel, finger, scalpel, finger. So next time you're faced with a challenging airway, remember these six pitfalls. You'll almost certainly save a couple of extra lives a year. Thank you for your attention. 